Well, we're in this series we're calling The Circus of Life, and in the circus that is our culture, everyone is desperately searching for meaning. Everyone is desperately trying to find their place in this world. They're searching for their purpose in this life. Now, a lot of people search for their purpose by trying to stand out. You know, they want the spotlight. They want to be the star of their own show, and it's that they want to be unique. They want to be different. They want to be special. Uh, They want people to notice how different and unique and valuable they are. And some people try so hard to be different, they become just like everyone else. And because it doesn't matter if you have a million followers, it's never enough. It's never enough to feel the emptiness in your soul. It doesn't matter if you're more successful than everyone else, if you achieve more than everyone else, if you accomplish more than everyone else, If you accumulate more than everyone else, it's never enough to fill the emptiness in your soul. Well, I am so excited that God has led us to do this series because when it comes to the circus of life where we're all trying to spin the plates to keep everything going in our overcrowded schedules and our undernourished relationships and we feel like everything's just about to come crashing to the ground, There is another way. You see, it'll never be enough until you step out of the spotlight of trying to be the star of your own show and you step into the greatest show on earth, God's purpose for your life. That's when you find significance. That's when you find fulfillment. When you step into the greatest show on earth and of all time, and that's God's purpose. And God has a personal purpose for your life. And it's not about us asking God to come over and bless our little purpose. It's about God asking us and inviting us into his greatest show on earth. And we find our purpose in life. And we become unique. We become different. And God shines his spotlight through us so that others can see. You know, I watched a documentary the other day on the circus, and it was really interesting because I'd always heard that people ran away with the circus, that teenagers would run away with the circus. And I I didn't know if that was true or not, but they said yes. There were thousands of young people would run away with the circus in the early 1900s, you know, to in the 1930s and 40s, that the circus would come to some boring little Midwestern town and, and a teenager would come in and see the circus and all the glamor and the lights and the costumes and all the amazing talent And they would just be mesmerized, just enchanted by the circus. So they would leave their boring little lives and they would join the glamorous circus and run away with the circus only to find that their job was to clean out the elephant cages and be knee deep in elephant dung. And it wasn't so glamorous anymore. Or only to find that they were the ones that were having to build the tent And they were the ones having to drag the carriages off the train. And they were doing all the the behind-the-scenes stuff. And when they got behind the scenes of the circus, it wasn't so glamorous anymore. There was a, you know, a seedy side to the circus, to circus life. And they realized that right away. But that's the way life is, you know. On the outside, everything can look great. But on the inside, it can be a mess. And life is filled with ups and downs and mountains and valleys, with bright lights and dark nights. That's just the way life is. And so 
you're in for a powerful message today because Pastor Lee Strobel is going to teach us from God's word how we can make it to the valleys of life because everyone goes through valleys. And even when you're in God's will and following God's purpose, God will guide you into some valleys because it's in the valleys that you found, find the mountaintop with God. God does his greatest miracles in the valleys of life. And some of you are in the valley right now, and you know what I'm talking about. I, I don't know what it is, a valley of depression, a valley of anxiety, a, a valley of a relationship that's falling apart. You're right in the middle of a dark valley right now, and God has a word for you. And I'm so excited about what God's gonna do in all of our lives over the next few moments. So even when you're in God's will, sometimes God's will is that you go through a valley so that it draws you deeper in him. But let's pray together. Dear God, we love you. I just pray for Lee that you would speak through him. Lord, what a powerful weekend this has been, how you're working in lives and changing lives. And I pray for everyone within the sound of my voice, everyone at our satellite campuses, everyone, Lord, here in the Woodlands campus, everyone who is watching through our broadcast and online ministry around the world, that you would just let them know that you know where they're at and what they're going through. And you have a word for them, Lord, as you teach through Pastor Lee. And I thank you for Lee, Lord. We thank you for how you use him, Lord, at Woodlands Church and all over the world. We pray that you continue to watch over him and strengthen he and his family. And Lord, we just pray right now that you would speak to every one of our hearts so that we will know how to make it through the valleys, not only to make it through, but to experience you, to experience you more than ever, to experience you deeper than ever in the deepest valleys of life. Help us, Lord Jesus, have victory in the valleys. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Carrie is certainly right. At one time or the other, we're all gonna go through a valley in life. Could be an emotional valley, could be a financial valley, could be a medical valley, could be a marital valley, a relational, a spiritual valley, all kinds of valleys that we end up going through. The Bible talks about this. In the Old Testament, of course, the most famous psalm of all, the 23rd Psalm, verse 4 says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jesus says, we're all going to face a valley. Why? Because we live in a sin-scarred world. He said in John 16, verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. You are going to go through valleys. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. So how can we access that kind of peace and courage and wisdom and power of God when we're trudging through one of these inevitable valleys of life? And how can we be the hands and feet of Jesus to other people around us who may be going through a similar valley? In other words, how can we find victory in our valleys? Well, I want to talk very personally today about three valleys that I've gone through and how God met me at the depths of those valleys. A lot of this is not easy for me to talk about, but it's been my prayer and my hope that God would use it to encourage you to say, you know, maybe I can meet God in the midst of a valley that he has you going through. So let me talk about these three valleys. The first one is this. First, I found victory in an emotional valley, an emotional valley. 
This is a valley that some of us find ourselves in because the truth is none of our earthly fathers is perfect. I haven't been the perfect dad. I'm not the perfect grandfather. Uh, and as for me, uh, I was an unwanted pregnancy in the eyes of my father. And as a result, we never bonded. We had a very tumultuous, difficult um, relationship. And I believe that relationship and the, the difficulty of having a strain between me and my dad was a factor that helped lead me into atheism. I say that because when you look at the lives of all of the most famous atheists over the last four centuries, one of the common themes in all of their lives is they either had a difficult relationship with their father or their father died or abandoned their family when they were young. You just go down the list and you can see the pattern over and over again. Nietzsche, Hume, Russell, Sartre, Camus, Schopenhauer, Fobbes, Voltaire, Dolbach, Butler, Freud, Wells, Feuerbach, Toland, Ellis, O'Hare, Dennett, all of them either had a dad who died when they were young, abandoned their family, or with whom they had a very difficult relationship. Dr. Paul Vitz, who's a psychologist at New York University, uh, wrote a book called Faith of the Fatherless. And he said, the, the reason behind this is that if your earthly father has disappointed you or hurt you in some way, then often you don't want to know a heavenly father. You walk the other way from the idea of a heavenly father. Why? Because you figure he's just going to be worse. He's going to be like a magnified version of my earthly dad. He's only going to hurt me worse. And so I attribute my slide into atheism not only to intellectual questions I had, not only to moral issues in my life, but also to the emotional issues that resulted in what's commonly called a father wound. Have you ever had that? I mean, is that an explanation for you or maybe a friend of yours who's, who's adamantly opposed to God, and you wonder, what's driving that? And this is kind of a key to understand, in some cases, why someone has turned their back on the very idea of God. But the truth is, there can be victory even in this valley. For me, there were several steps toward full healing, but I'll mention just two of them. The first is this. C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian writer, said, we can all, regardless of the difficulty you may have had with an earthly father, all of us can imagine what a perfect father would be like. Just imagine, what would a perfect father be like? He'd be loving, he'd be kind, he'd be gracious, he'd be forgiving, he'd be generous, He'd be your biggest cheerleader. He'd be your strongest supporter. He'd pull you on his lap and hug you and so forth. We can all imagine what the perfect father would be like. And then C.S. Lewis said, now that is a picture of our heavenly father. That's a picture of the God who loves you and wants to rescue you from the valleys of life. I mean, where we make our mistake is thinking that God is somehow just a magnified version of our earthly dad. He's not. He's fundamentally different. The Bible says that God's essence is love. And that's the Father who you can trust with your life and your eternity. Psalm 68, verse 5, calls God a father to the fatherless. And whether your father was literally gone or whether there was an emotional strain that put a rift between you and your dad, God is saying he can be your father. 
Psalm 27, verse 10 says, For if my father and mother should abandon me, you, God, would welcome and comfort me. Psalm 62, verse 5 said, Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. And when I finally reached out to that perfect heavenly father, that's when the main healing began for me emotionally. But the final healing moment came just a few years ago when they were filming the movie The Case for Christ, which was a motion picture based on my story of coming from atheism to faith. And Leslie and I went down to Georgia where they were filming the movie on a soundstage. And there's one scene that didn't make it into the final movie. Uh, And it's a true episode that happened on the eve of my high school graduation where my dad and I got into a terrible argument and he looked at me and said, I don't have enough love for you to fill my little finger. And that was sort of the breaking point between me and my dad. Uh, I walked out of the house, never intending to return, went off, rented an apartment, and that rift between us never healed um, before my dad died, just before I graduated from law school. Well, the actor playing my dad in the movie was an Academy Award-nominated character actor by the name of Robert Forster. Now, you may not know the name of Robert Forster, but I bet you know the face of Robert Forster. He's been in 130 movies and television shows. I'll put his picture up. Yeah, you probably recognize him from various roles that he has played. The, The weird thing is, he looked a lot like my dad. And he was playing my dad in this film, and he just had this emotional scene telling me he didn't love me. And the director said, cut. And I'd never met Robert Forster before, and so Leslie and I are on the sidelines there, and the director says, cut, they're going to take a break. And Robert Forster walked over to me, and I put out my hand to greet him, and, but he surprised me. So he did something I didn't expect. He stayed in character as my dad. And so here he is, standing in the shoes of my dad, and he reaches out to me, and he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, Lee, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. And I was kind of flummoxed by it at first, and then I felt his hand grip, his grip on my shoulder get a little stronger, and he said, Lee, I'm sorry. And I told him I was sorry too. And that was used, that moment, by God, I think is kind of the final healing moment of this father wound. I mean, what a tender-hearted thing for this actor to do. Um, what was he doing? He was, he was standing in the shoes of my father and saying the words that my father never lived long enough to stay. And there was a healing moment in that. And it made me think, you know, there are ways where we can all provide healing moments to other people who are going through emotional valleys. What kind of, whatever kind of emotional valley it is, we can be an instrument of God's healing, just as Robert Forster was an instrument in healing in my life. I mean, we can be a shoulder to cry on. We can be someone who offers our prayers. We can be someone who offers encouragement. We can be someone that offers the wisdom of Scripture. We can um, offer empathy and understanding especially if we've already ourselves gone through that same kind of valley and come through the other side, that we can have a special perspective as we reach out to help someone else. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, 
who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the same comfort we ourselves receive from God. So as, as God helps us through a valley, we can turn around and help someone else through a valley that they're going through. I mentioned Paul Vitz, the psychologist who wrote the book about these father issues common to atheists. And he was doing a public event one time, and there was a guy in the audience who went to the microphone, and he got up and he said, you know, I've, I've been healed. I've, I've come through this valley and, and come out the other side, and I feel like God's really restored me. And I'm just wondering what I should do next. And Paul Vitz, who's a, a Christian, said, well, here's what you should do. Go and find a child in the same situation that you were in and be a father figure to that child. I thought that was powerful. In other words, go volunteer in the student ministry. Go volunteer in the children's ministry. Uh, find a kid um, who maybe doesn't have a good father figure at home. Be that father figure for them. I've tried to do this with my grandchildren, just to try to be a dad who reflects the love and grace of our Heavenly Father uh, so that they would see that and be encouraged by that. So how can you be a godly role model for someone, some young person, in your life. Friends, regardless of the emotional valley that you might be in, regardless of whatever psychological wounds you may be covering or, or, or bearing, the Bible says God can still, nevertheless, bring victory in that valley. The second valley I want to talk about is something that Leslie and I went through. And we found victory in a marital valley, a marriage valley. See, Leslie and I got married pretty young. Um, we met when we were 14 years old. Leslie went home and told her mom, I met the boy I'm going to marry. And sure enough, we got married. I was 20. She was 19. We couldn't even drink champagne at our wedding. We were too young. So we had champagne glasses filled with milk. Um, <laughs> that's true. But, you know, we, were, we had the same common foundation. Uh, I was an atheist. She was agnostic. And so we had a similar worldview and everything was pretty copacetic. But then several years into our relationship, Leslie comes to faith in Christ, which for me as an atheist was the worst news I could ever get. I mean, first, when she told me, first word that went through my mind was divorce. I was going to walk out. I, I thought, you know, this is bait and switch. I married the one Leslie. Now she's going to turn into something else, some holy roller or something. I want the old Leslie back. And now all of a sudden, our marriage was full of conflict. Why? Because now we had different worldviews. Leslie was a devout follower of Christ. I was an adamant atheist, and we clashed on virtually every issue that came up. Uh, how are we going to raise our kids? She wanted to take them to church, take them to Sunday school, learn about Jesus. Uh, I didn't want them indoctrinated. How do we spend our money? She wanted to donate money to the church. I looked at her, I said, honey, you might as well just flush the money down the toilet rather than give it to a church. Um, she wanted to spend her Sundays at church worshiping God. I wanted to sleep off my hangover from Saturday night. Um, and so we had conflict in every area of our marriage and our marriage was headed for divorce. I think it's easy from that to see why it is that God discourages his followers from marrying those outside the faith. He loves us so much, he wants us to avoid the kind of emotional turmoil and anguish and conflict that comes about so often when one spouse is a devoted follower of Christ and the other is something else. Um, 
So Paul tells Christians in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, he wasn't issuing a blanket prohibition against Christians having any association with outsiders, but he is warning us that any linkage with a non-believer that would lead us to compromise or water down or stifle our devotion to Christ, we ought to avoid it. We ought to avoid it. Paul uses a Greek word that has two components, other and yoked. This refers to a command in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, where the Bible says, um, uh, be cautioned against um, yoking two animals together unless they are equal in size and the same species. And what I mean by that is this. When, in the old days, when you were going to plow a field and you had two animals, you were going to yoke them together. And the yoke was wooden and metal and it fit around the necks of the animals. Now, if the animals were of the same species and the same size and about the same strength, then they would harmoniously pull together and you could plow the field efficiently. But if they were two animals of different species, if one was an oxen and one was a donkey, or if one was particularly strong and the other was kind of sickly and weak, then they were unequally yoked. They would have an out-of-sync gait, and it would cause the yoke, the wooden yoke, to pinch and to choke them, and it, was, it would lead to pain on the necks of these animals. And so Paul is cautioning Christians that pain can result if they allow themselves to be harnessed with a non-believer in marriage. He's saying the result can be a choking or a hindering of the Christian's faith. You know, the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, thought he was smarter than God. And he violated God's command against marrying outside the faith. And the result was disastrous. He ended up broken and depressed and despondent and full of guilt. And then in a similar way, marriage to Jezebel quickly prompted the Jewish king Ahab to abandon his allegiance to the true God and to begin win, uh, worshiping the false god of Baal. And the result is described in 1 Kings 16, verse 33. that says, Ahab did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. But due to a variety of circumstances, there's a lot of Christians who find themselves wed to someone who is not a follower of Christ. I mean, it happens fairly frequently for a lot of reasons. Um, could be, like Leslie and me, that they weren't, neither was a Christian when they got married, then one came to faith, and now there's this unequal situation. Could be that they never heard teachings about this before, and they married someone who is not a follower of Christ, hoping to win them to the Lord, and it doesn't happen, and now they're kind of caught in this mismatched situation. There's a variety of reasons why um, Christians end up in, in a mismatched marriage. But what I want to tell you if you're in that situation is there is still hope. There is still hope. God does not abandon you because you are in a mismatched marriage. You can learn to grow spiritually despite resistance from your spouse. You can learn to lovingly encourage your spouse in his spiritual journey. You can learn to earnestly seek the best for your partner without unfairly burdening yourself with undue responsibility for his salvation. In short, as John 16, said earlier, God can give you the two very things that you need in the midst of a spiritually mismatched marriage. He can give you peace, and he can give you courage. 
how Leslie got through this in our marriage was by building three key relationships. The first relationship she built was with God. She knew she had to concentrate on building a relationship with God because she knew it was God who was going to change her from the inside out in a winsome and attractive way. And, and it was God, through his Holy Spirit, as Galatians chapter 5 says, was going to increase in her over time the gifts uh, or the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the very things she needed, the nine qualities she needed to survive in a mismatch. The second relationship she built was with a mentor, a person of the same gender who was a mature Christian, who could be a mentor to her spiritually, someone who would be a source of wisdom and advice, someone who would help her grow spiritually by providing biblical input and coaching, someone who was a committed prayer partner with her, someone who offered a shoulder to cry on, someone who made sure that Leslie didn't get mired in self-pity and didn't start falling into the trap of being judgmental and blaming me for everything bad that happened in the marriage. And the third relationship she was committed to building was her relationship with me, her husband. Whenever the centrifugal force of the spiritual mismatch threatened to fling us further apart, she would reach out and pull me back in. In other words, we got married for a reason. We loved each other. And so she would go back to those things we used to do together. We used to go on long bike rides together. We used to go on long walks together. We used to you know, take little vacations up to Wisconsin together. And so she would try to continue to build her relationship with me to avoid the mismatch from flinging us totally apart. And the other thing Leslie did is she learned to pray. The verse that she focused on was Ezekiel 36, 26. That says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And Leslie would pray for me and say to God, God, Lee's heart is like granite. I can't crack it open. I need you to soften his heart. I need you to put a new spirit in him and new desires and new purpose and new meaning. Well, we were in this mismatched marriage for about two years before God answered that prayer. And I came to faith in Christ, and now we were again on the same foundation, this time a spiritual foundation, this time a biblical foundation, this time God's foundation. And then we were able to go into a new era of our relationship. And now after 46 years of marriage, um, our relationship gets stronger all the time because we draw on Jesus Christ in building who we are together. But I want to tell you, that doesn't always happen. I mean, you may be married to someone who's not a Christian, and they may never become a follower of Jesus in this life. That's just the true reality. But I want to say, you can still find victory in that relationship. You can have, listen, you can have a Christian marriage to the extent that you unilaterally live out Christian principles and values in that relationship. And what's more, God will use this experience to transform you into a man or woman of faith that you otherwise never could have become. Leslie today is a woman of great depth in her faith, great courage, great um, perseverance, 
and strength, inner strength, because, not in spite of those two years that we clashed in this mismatched marriage, but because of what we went through, God has molded her into something she never otherwise could have been. Hebrews 5, verse 8 says, Jesus learned obedience through suffering. And if Jesus needed suffering to teach him obedience in this life, how much more do we need the, value, uh, the valleys of life for us to help teach us and mold us in ways that we never could have been molded? The truth is we could never know the value of courage and perseverance if we lived in a world with no struggle. We could never know the value of integrity if we lived in a world with no temptations. Friends, our world is a soul-shaping machine. That is what planet Earth is. It is a machine to form your soul. And God uses even the valleys of our lives to mold us, to mold our soul into something that we never otherwise could have been. So if you're in a spiritually mismatched marriage, or it could be that your spouse is also a Christian but not growing like you are, that you're enthusiastic about growing in your faith but your spouse doesn't seem interested, that's another kind of mismatch. Um, maybe you're single and you're wondering, should I be dating someone who is not a believer? Leslie and I have written a book to help you in this. It's called Spiritual Mismatch. And we've drawn from our personal experience and being in a mismatch situation, drawn from scripture, as a 30-day prayer guide, but if that book can be helpful, then um, I think maybe it'll help you find the road to victory, even in the midst of your mismatch. So that's the second valley that I went through. The third valley was the most difficult of all. I managed, through God, to find victory in a spiritual valley. Eight years ago, I almost died. My wife found me unconscious on the floor of our bedroom. She called the paramedics. They came. I opened my eyes in the emergency room, and the doctor looked at me and said, you're one step away from a coma, two steps away from dying. And I lapsed back into unconsciousness. I was on the edge of death. I had a cascade of medical issues that had brought me to the precipice of dying. I had pneumonia, I had lost a kidney as part of this. I was having an allergic reaction to some medication the doctors had given me. Uh, but most of all, I was suffering from something I never heard of before called hyponatremia. And what hyponatremia is, is a drop in your blood sodium level. Uh, and I'd never heard of this before. It turns out that our blood sodium level is it kept at a, at a very specific band uh, to be healthy. But if it falls too far low, you will die. And if you're in the medical field, if you're a doctor or something, I'm going to tell you my number of my blood sodium level will blow your mind. My number was below 112, which if you're a doctor, you know, oh, you died, right? <laughs> you can't live with a sodium level 112 and going down, down, down. Because what happens is your brain cells take in moisture. They take in um, um, you know, moisture. And so your brain cells become, uh, start to expand inside your skull. Well, obviously your skull is a confined space. And here your brain cells are expanding. And so what happens to you is you become confused. You become um, um, disoriented. 
You, you have hallucinations. I had all of that, and the next steps would be seizures, coma, and death. So here I am in the hospital, and the doctors knew they had to very carefully raise my blood sodium level. It has to be done very slowly and very carefully. If you don't do it just right, the patient can be permanently disabled. You can have all kinds of, uh, you know, mentally disabled the rest of your life. So as my brain was becoming squeezed in my skull, I was becoming increasingly irrational and overwrought with emotional turmoil. And in my mental confusion caused by the hyponatremia, in this confusion, I became absolutely convinced that God had walked away from me, that God had abandoned me, that I was disconnected from God. Have you ever felt that? If you're a follower of Christ, has there ever been a valley that you've gone through where God all of a sudden seemed distant, where God seemed disconnected from you, where you felt like God had kind of said, I've had enough of you, and walks the other way? Well, that's what I was going through, and it is a frightening experience. Well, as the doctors were working on me, trying to uh, raise my blood sodium, I was still somewhat confused. I was making progress. Things were a little better, and my son came up to me. Now, my son is, you know, he's 40 years old. He's a, a brilliant uh, theologian. He has his PhD in theology. Um, he's a professor of theology at one of the biggest uh, Christian seminaries in America. So a very spiritually grounded man. And my son came up to me and said, Dad, I, I don't understand everything that's going on with you with all this medical stuff, but I sense that you're feeling alienated from God right now. And I said, yeah, son, I am. And he said, well, Dad, I want to help reconnect you with your identity in Christ. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, Dad, you see, when we approach God, we unintentionally bring along a false sense of ourself because our identity is tied up in what we do and what we accomplish. We subconsciously hide who we really are in order to project an image to God and an image to the world that we're really in control. I said, Dad, I want to help you strip all that away. And I said, I want that too. So for the next 30 minutes, my son ministered to his dad. And he led me through a 30-minute prayer guiding me in this prayer and prompting me in very specific ways, giving me time for his words to soak into my soul before I repeated them back to God. And this is the prayer. And I want you to listen to this and kind of put yourself in this prayer. This may be a prayer that you need. This may be a prayer that your soul longs for you to pray, to reconnect with God on the deepest of levels. So this is what he led me in praying. Lord, I affirm that I am idolatrous and sinful and that this is leaked into how I present myself to you. I admit to you that I am finite. I like to believe I'm infinite and I can control my life and run my world, but the truth is I can't. Only you can. I affirm that I am a finite physical body and that right now I'm feeling confused and tired and a little scared. My illness has clouded my mind. My body is limited. 
I can't meet everyone's wishes, let alone my own ambitions and desires. I'm thankful that I'm not God. Only you, God, can meet all of my needs. I affirm that I am not defined by my abilities, my roles, or my accomplishments. At my deepest places, I am not my behaviors. I am not my feelings. I am not my choices. I am not my personality quirks. I'm not my virtues or my vices. I'm not defined by how much I succeed or what other people think of me. At the core of my spirit, I'm not a pastor. I'm not an author. I'm not a speaker. I'm not a teacher or an apologist. I'm not my awards or my honors. I'm not my degrees. I'm not my resume. I'm not my bank account. I'm not my possessions and I'm not my relationships. I'm not a husband, a parent, a son, or a neighbor, or a friend. What was he doing? He was peeling away all of these layers all of these layers, and I just felt relieved. I felt relieved that I don't have to hold my own world together anymore. I don't have to pretend I have the answers to every question in the world. I could come into the presence of God as I really was. And Kyle continued leading me. He said, Lord, I affirm the reality of my soul's true identity. I am yours, God, created for union with you. In my deepest place, I am a naked spirit clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I am precious in your eyes. I am fully pardoned of my guilt and fully accepted by you. I am your son, beloved by you for eternity and held in your everlasting embrace. That is who I truly am. And our prayer... Prayer continued along those lines for quite a while. And at the end, Kyle picked up his Bible and opened it to Philippians chapter 3. And he read the words of Paul. said, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. What Kyle did for me is he helped me strip away all of my earthly identity and accomplishments and roles and pretensions and self-reliance and self-righteousness until all that was left was the core of who I am, a child of the Most High in the loving embrace of my perfect Father forever. That is who ultimately I am. And at that level, I reconnected with God. And it changed my life. And ever since then, I've had the richest, deepest, most powerful relationship with my Heavenly Father. In fact, I can honestly say that as scary and frightening as, as being on the edge of death was, I thank God for that experience because it was through that valley that God wed me back to him for eternity in a profound and a powerful way. And every day of my life, I can now 
experience and enjoy that relationship at a renewed level. Have you ever felt disconnected from God as a follower of Christ? Have you ever felt, no, he's distant all of a sudden. James 4 verse 8 says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Maybe it's time for you to come to God. Strip away all of these earthly things, these pretensions, these, 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 uh, the, the self-control, uh, the, the, you know, the, the sense you can control your entire world. To strip away all of the accomplishments, to strip away all of the things we like to focus on, take it all away and go back to just being a child of the Most High in his precious embrace forever. Maybe tonight, in the quietness of your room, you need to kind of go through a prayer like Kyle led me through and get back to that place and reconnect with God in a new way. But I'm gonna end with this. Maybe you're not sure if you're ever connected to God in the first place. Maybe God has always seemed distant from you. You know, you come into a place like this, you hear people talk about they have, how they have a deep and a rich and a real and a powerful personal relationship with God, and in the back of your mind, you're thinking, why is it not like that with me? Why does God seem distant from me? Could it be because you've never really come to him, received his free gift of forgiveness and eternal life, and become a child of the Most High? Maybe you would have no confidence if you were to be found unconscious on your bedroom floor tonight, and you opened your eyes in the emergency room, and they looked at you and said, you're one step away from a coma, two steps away from dying. You would have no confidence whatsoever that if you were to die in this world, if you were to close your eyes for the last time in this world, you would have no confidence that you would open them in the presence of God in the world to come. Maybe you need to connect with God for the first time. You know, there's a verse in the Old Testament that talks about valleys, In the book of Joel, third chapter, 14th verse, it's very relevant to this very moment. This is what it says. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Friends, some of you right at this moment are in the valley of decision. And the time has come for you to decide, to decide for Christ, to decide for forgiveness, to decide for grace, to decide for eternal life, to decide for new desires and new meaning and new purpose in your life, to make the decision right now, that is what I need, that is what I want, that is my only hope. That perfect father that all of us can imagine, that's the father I need to connect with for eternity. Maybe this is your moment of decision. So let me help you make that choice. Let's just close our eyes and bow our heads. And if you want to take that step right now, receive this free gift of grace, forgiveness, eternal life that God is offering to you, to come to him simply as a sinner who brings nothing to the table except the desire for his free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. If you want to take that step and embrace your heavenly Father, just in your heart, God will hear you, in your heart, say these words. Say, Father, thank you for this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that you offer to me. 
I admit that I am a sinner, and I want to turn from that. And in an attitude of repentance and faith, I want to receive your free gift of grace. Thank you, Father, for your love for me. Thank you for sending your son to die for my sins so that I don't have to. Help me, Father, to live the kind of life that you want me to live because from this moment on, I am yours. And now, Father, we celebrate, just as Luke 15 talks about, we celebrate those that have taken that step just now who have embraced you for the first time. We celebrate that. We celebrate those that are going to be baptized in just a few minutes as a public expression of their love for you, of being united with you forever. Thank you that we can come to you not burdened down by what this earth finds important and valuable, but simply as sinners seeking forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift from you. You are awesome in your love and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. God bless y'all. Thank you so much, Lee. Wow. This is a divine moment of decision. Thank you so much, Lee. This is a divine moment of decision. And a divine moment is where God meets you in a really clear and powerful way in which you can't deny that it is God speaking to your heart. And those divine moments can become defining moments. They, they really can. Because in a divine moment, when God speaks to your heart, he always asks you to take a step of faith. And when you take a step of faith and follow him in a divine moment, it propels you thousands of steps ahead. It takes you to a whole new level. When you take a step of faith in a divine moment, it becomes a defining moment. But if you take a step back in fear, it's destructive and it sets you way back. Now, you don't get to decide when a divine moment comes into your life. God chooses that. God planned this divine moment before he created the foundations of the earth. He planned that he would meet with you here on June 9th, 2019 at Woodlands Church. He planned this divine moment and divine moments happen because God wants them to happen. It's those moments. There are very few where God comes and meets us in such a clear and powerful way and he asks us to take a step of faith in that moment, not later, but in that moment. So you don't get to decide when a divine moment comes into your life, but once a divine moment comes into your life, you have to make a decision. You have to choose whether or not you're gonna step forward in faith and obey God or step back in fear. And for many of you, the step that God wants you to take today is baptism because you've received Christ into your life. Maybe you just prayed to receive Christ into your life and his free gift of forgiveness and salvation as Lee led you in that prayer. Or maybe you did it last week, or maybe you did it 20 years ago, but you've never been baptized by immersion like the Bible commands. Jesus commands us to be baptized after we receive Christ to show our faith. So the greatest show of faith on earth is baptism. 
because it shows that Christ is in your life. In the New Testament, baptism was always a public celebration because it was your public announcement that you love Jesus, that he was in your life. And there would be religious leaders and government officials at the baptisms because then they would say, okay, yeah, I thought that guy was a Christian. And your name would be put down to be persecuted, imprisoned, or killed. But everyone being baptized was saying, I don't care what anyone does to me. I don't care if I'm persecuted. I want everyone to know I love Jesus Christ and he's in my life. This is my public show of faith. This is the greatest show of faith on earth and I'm part of it. I'm following Christ because he commands me to be baptized like he was to show my faith no matter what. Because Jesus said in scripture, if you're ashamed of me here on this earth, I'll be ashamed of you in eternity. And they were saying, I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ no matter what happens to me and I want everyone to know it. I don't want him to be ashamed of me. Do you know baptism means the same thing today? I say that because we're getting ready to have our super summer baptism, the greatest show of faith on earth and the greatest thing we do at Woodlands Church because it shows that Christ died, was buried, rose again, he's alive in your life. It's an amazing show of faith. And I say that because baptism is a public celebration. We're gonna celebrate, we're gonna have cake and punch and it's gonna be amazing out there. It's been amazing all weekend. And it means the same thing today. It's just in America we don't get persecuted. But what we don't realize is that in many countries around the world, people get persecuted for being baptized. In communist China, they're really cracking down right now on when people are baptized. It's against the law to be baptized. So when people are baptized, they know it could mean persecution. In many Muslim countries, it's against the law to be baptized. But there are thousands being baptized all around the world today, knowing it could mean persecution, imprisonment, or death but they're saying, I don't care what happens to me. I want everyone to know this is my public announcement. This is my greatest show of faith. I want everyone to know that I love Jesus. I'm not ashamed of him, and I don't want him to be ashamed of me. Did you know there's more persecution for being baptized into Christ than ever in the history of this planet? In human history, this is, there's more persecution taking place today than ever before but we just don't think about it. But we in America are blessed to have freedom of worship, and so when you're baptized here, you're standing with your brothers and sisters around the world saying, I don't care what anyone thinks about me, I don't care that it feels a little uncomfortable, I don't care that what I look like when my hair gets wet, I don't care about anything, I just want everyone to know I love Jesus. And this is my show of faith, and I wanna obey Jesus. I'm not ashamed of him, I don't want him to be ashamed of me, I'm taking my step of faith, this is my decision. Now at Woodlands Church, I know that many or most of you who come to Woodland Church were baptized or sprinkled as a baby, and when you were baptized or sprinkled as a baby, your parents made a great decision that became a defining moment for them. They said, we choose by God's grace and power to raise our child to fall in love with Jesus at an early age. And they made a decision and a commitment before God and the church, and then you got your head wet and you cried and you don't remember it, so it wasn't your decision. It wasn't your divine moment, it was theirs. And once you were old enough to make your own commitment to Christ and receive him, you're to be baptized like Jesus said after you come to Christ. You're to be baptized like the scripture says after you come to Christ. And, and so I know that though many of you are baptized or sprinkled as babies, um, I just want to challenge you biblically to get rebaptized today right after the service. Get rebaptized today. I have rebaptized thousands of people who are sprinkled as babies. And I've never had anyone come out of the water and say, Carrie, my first baptism was so much more meaningful than this one. But I've had, I've had thousands come out of the water and just go, why was that so powerful? That's, 
Why is that so freeing? Some with tears in their eyes because obedience brings blessing. And you're obeying God, taking a step of faith to say, it's my decision now. It's my divine moment. I'm going to seize my divine moment. It's going to become a defining moment for my family, for generations to come. It's my time. I choose Jesus. That's what it means. I want you to see the story of Vinny and Natasha. And they go to our Atascacita campus and they were baptized last summer at our Super Summer Baptism. I think we had around 1,000 people baptized at our Super Summer Baptism last summer. And this weekend, it's been amazing. You know, it's just, and I know so many of you are going to get baptized right after the service. I want you to see this, what God's doing in their life. Just watch. Yeah, and it's... Nobody, there's no better time than right now. I know many of you have your baptism clothes with you and you're ready to go. You came prepared to be baptized right after this service is over. And I know many of you, God has spoken to your heart right now. And you know now you're in a divine moment. You weren't ready for it. You weren't expecting it. You didn't plan it, but you're in it because God loves you. And now all you have to do is take a step of faith. And you say, well, Carrie, I didn't bring my baptism clothes. I mean, I, you know, I didn't prepare for this. I don't know. I'm supposed to meet someone for lunch. I've got, there'll be a thousand excuses that you'll have, but none of them will be good enough not to take a step of faith in your divine moment. And I have what I call a no excuse box right here, our instant baptism box. You know, if you didn't bring your baptism clothes, we've got in our dressing rooms, we have dressing rooms for men, dressing rooms for women right out there. And we have got everything you need. We've got these t-shirts of all different sizes says raised to life. And then we have shorts, dark shorts of all sizes, I promise you. We have something that can fit you, all different sizes. We have towels, we have blow dryers for your hair and brushes that I don't need. We have mirrors and we got everything that you need, okay? I'm, I promise you, for after you get your hair wet. And we also have a baptism certificate that we take your picture with the, in the baptism pool and send you your certificate. And it is something you can always remember, that baptism where you follow the Lord, took that step of baptism. And so there's really no excuse. So right after the service ends, right before the service ends, I am going to dismiss all those who are being baptized. And I know there's gonna be a huge chunk of you guys in here who are gonna take a step of faith and go out to the baptism waters. And, and what you'll do once you go out there and you get changed, then you'll come to the baptism fountain and I and our other pastors will be out there. We'll help you into the water. And then I'll say, do you want to hold your nose? If you do, then I just raise your hands up to your nose and lower you into the water and right back up. It's as simple as that. And, and people ask me, why did Jesus command us to be baptized? Why didn't he choose something else? You know, I, I don't know. But I know obedience brings blessing. I do know it's a beautiful picture that Christ died, was buried, rose again, and he's alive in your life to make all the difference in your life. And I do know it symbolizes that Christ has washed away your sins and you're a new creation. I do know that it's a powerful symbol for married couples to be baptized together. Say, we're building our marriage on Jesus. It's a powerful symbol for single adults to be baptized. Say, I'm gonna follow Jesus no matter what. It's a powerful symbol to see families baptized together, to say our family's built on Jesus. And I just, I just biblically challenge you. If you've never been baptized, after you received Christ by immersion, follow Christ in biblical baptism today. Now, why do we miss divine and defining moments in our lives? Because we make excuses. That's why. Why don't we seize those defining moments? There's several reasons why we get par paralyzed by trying to be perfect. 
Some people say, well, I'm not good enough to be baptized. Carrie, you don't know all the mess in my life. I'm just, I got all kinds of sins. You don't, you don't understand. I'll try to clean up my act a little bit. Then I'll be good enough to be baptized. But I'm not good enough right now. No, you'll never be good enough because it's not about what you can do. It's about what Christ has already done for you. You've got to come just as you are. As Lee said, stripped away of everything. We're all broken and sinful and a mess. And we need a Savior. And the only way you come to him is that way. And some of us get paralyzed by pride. What do I mean by that? We're always worried about what everyone thinks about us. What would they think about me? Some of you may say, Carrie, I came to Christ 30 years ago. I am a mature believer, but I was never baptized by immersion after I received Christ. But I am a mature believer, and if I get baptized, some people are going to think that I'm just a baby Christian, that I'm a new believer. Well, who cares what people think? All that matters is what God says. And by you thinking, that shows you're a baby Christian anyway, so you ought to go for it. We get paralyzed by our pride. And then we get paralyzed by our good intentions. We always equate our intentions with actions. We think, you know what, I'm going to be baptized, but just not today. I wasn't ready for it. We're going to have a time when all the family and everything's going to work out just perfectly. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get baptized, but not today. And you think your intentions equal actions. Well, God could care less about our intentions. Intentions are worthless. Actions are all that matter. Actions in faith, taking a step of faith, not a leap of faith, just a step of faith into the waters. In fact, the enemy loves to say tomorrow. His favorite word's tomorrow. God's word is always today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of miracles. Today is the day. Today is your someday. But you gotta take one step of faith and he'll take you the rest of the way. That's the way God works. And then we get paralyzed by fear. We're a little afraid. We're a little uncomfortable. We're not sure exactly, you know. And, and here's the great thing. Every decision I've made for Christ, every time I've taken a next step of my faith, I've always been afraid. But I don't let my fears keep me from taking a step of faith. I, I love the movie, We Bought a Zoo. It's based on the book by Benjamin Mee of the true story of how he and his family acquired a zoo and operate a zoo and there's one scene in the movie where the character who, uh, who's playing, or the actor who's playing the character Benjamin Mee is talking to his teenage son, and his teenage son is really frustrated because he, he's having trouble talking to a girl he has a crush on, and, and he's afraid to talk to her. He's afraid not to talk to her, that the, that the opportunity is going to slip by. He's afraid of saying something wrong. He's afraid of not saying anything, and he didn't know what to do. And so his dad, Benjamin Me, says to him, son, I wanted to share with you a philosophy that's really helped me. I've kind of lived my life by this. And he says this quote, which I love. He says, you know, sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage, just literally 20 seconds of just embarrassing bravery. And I promise you, something great will come of it. That's so biblical. Your fears will never go away. All you need is 20 seconds of insane courage, just to step in faith, to believe God, no matter how you how fearful you are. Courage is stepping in faith in spite of your fears, not letting your fears dictate your life. And then the fears fall away as you step into the waters and peace and joy fill your heart. You know, our students left last night, a thousand, over a thousand high school students, several hundred counselors and staff got on 20 buses and headed out to Panama City, Florida, and they're still not there. It takes them until about two o'clock and they get there. That sounds awful, doesn't it? But God works. And these students, these high school students, um, God is working in their life. And last year at Beach Week, there were around 150 high school students 
who prayed to receive Christ, and they called and asked their parents for permission that they could get baptized in the ocean, and they did, to show their faith. Just watch. That's what it's all about. Life change. The greatest show of faith on earth is baptism in Christ. And now we're at the part where we give back to God, and so right after the offering, I'm gonna dismiss all those who have been baptized to, to head out, and it's gonna be amazing. Um, but as we get ready to give, just thank the Lord for all that he's given you, and then just pray for all the ministries, especially the students and the children's ministries. We're gonna have kiosks out there where you can get a wristband with one of our high school students' names on it. Put it on your wrist. You can pray for them all during the week, for God to change their life, to work in their life, to guide them, and to really do something powerful in their life this week. And when a friend asks you at work, what is that? It's a great chance to share your faith. Um, and I just wanna say to you, as we take our offering, if you're a regular tender, I encourage you to give over and above today your regular tithes and offerings because we have so many student and children's ministries that are going on this summer. A thousand high school students at high school camp. We got junior high com coming up. It's gonna be huge. Children's camps, vacation Bible school, all of our children's activities all through the summer. Um, and the church really scholarships every kid $150. Trying to keep the cost down, we subsidize 150 for every kid. And it's just because it's a ministry that makes such an impact in kids' lives. And so I just encourage you, if you want to invest in the next generation, which is going to change the world, then give extra today for next generation ministries. Just give extra from your heart. And we've got kiosks set up out there, too, where you can do that for our student summer and our children's summer ministries in a powerful way. Well, let's just give back to God. Lord, we love you as we give to you. We ask you to just remind us that everything we give is from you, that you're the greatest gift. And we thank you, Lord, that you promised to give back to us so we can be a conduit of your blessings. And we ask you, Lord, to bless our student and children's ministries this summer and all that you do, all the life change. Thank you for all those who are gonna be baptized right after this service, that you would just give them your strength and courage to step out. And I thank you for the blessing that will come. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, guys, if you're going to be baptized, uh, stand up and go on out. We want to give you an early start. Go for it. God bless you. Stand up. 20 seconds of insane courage. All you need to do is stand up. God will take you the rest of the way. Cheer for him, guys. Let's stand up. Go for it. Stand up. Some of you in the balcony, I know God's tugged on your heart. Just take a stand, and he'll take you the rest of the way. Go out there. Our great people will meet you, and they'll get you all set. Take a step of faith. It's a beautiful day out there. It's your day. It's your time. Seize this divine moment. Let's all stand, and it's not too late to go on out and be baptized. Just stand up and take a walk right on out there. God will do it for you. All you got to do is take one step, one step of faith. Hey, by the way, next weekend is Father's Day weekend, and we're going to have Midway on the Plaza before and after every service, and I will be teaching a message called The Strong Man, and we're going to have another song from the greatest um, showman, and God is just working greatly at Woodlands Church. I hope you'll join us out at the baptism. It's going to be fun, uh, and then next week, we got Midway on the Plaza, a lot of fun games and rides and things for the kids and food and fellowship for Father's Day. It's going to be amazing. God bless you, Woodlands Church. See you at the baptism. I'm ready to go. Hey, church. Thanks for listening to the Woodlands Church with Carrie Shook podcast. By listening, we hope that you're encouraged wherever you are. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast so that you can get the latest messages each week. For more information on Woodlands Church, check out the description for a link to our website and how to connect with us. 
We hope you have a great week.